Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. Nakba means catastrophe, and it is basically, it refers to May 15, 1948, which if you want to think about U.S. context, it would be like July 4th, 1776. It is the day in which settler colonial movement rests, quote-unquote, independence from a colonial power. So in this case, Britain, right? It was here in the North America, and it was also in Palestine. And then they declared themselves independent, but it's a settler colonial state that then it's built on the decimation, genocide, and the destruction of the indigenous people. Whether you're talking about native indigenous people of North America, we're talking about the Palestinians in Palestine. I'm Marie Cha, and you're listening to Making Contact. Today, we reflect on the Nakba, a word that refers both to the events of 1948, when Zionist militias expelled over 700,000 Palestinians from their villages and towns, and the ongoing destruction and occupation of their lands. Generations later, Palestinians continue to commemorate the Nakba by reclaiming their history, resisting the occupation, and continuing their fight to return home. Along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea lies Gaza, a 32-mile-long strip of land that some have described as the world's largest open-air prison. FSRN reporter Rami Al-Mahari features the work of one Nakba historian who spent years collecting oral histories from a family hometown that he's never been able to visit. Fifty-eight-year-old Ghazi Masleh points to a map on a wall of his home in the Megaz refugee camp in the central Gaza Strip. He explains the map shows farmlands in Batani al-Sharqi, the village his parents were forced to flee in May of 1948. Batani al-Sharqi is only 30 miles away, but Masleh has never been there, and neither have most the living descendants of its displaced inhabitants. Once depopulated, paramilitaries destroyed all of the village's structures, except for a police station built by British Mandate authorities in 1940. Mesla has been relentlessly collecting stories about Batani al-Sharqi for the last two years and has compiled the research into a 200-page book titled I'm from there and I have memories. The focus of this study is the Batani al-Sharqi village itself, including its important events. In the book, I highlighted the nature of the village from its origin through the first quarter of the 19th century, including the 1948 Nakba, up to the present. My tools for the study included historical research and resources, interviews with villagers who lived there prior to 1948, as well as some related documents that I collected from the villagers themselves. At the time of the Nakba, the village had approximately 750 residents and was about 1,500 square acres in size. Gaza's grandfather owned about 50 acres of farmland. Many in the village cultivated citrus trees. Mesleh reads aloud part of a first-hand account of the displacement, 
given by Musallam Yunus Musallam, an elder he interviewed last year. We loaded our luggage onto a camel and fled until we reached the eastern limits of Maghazi. We stayed in a tent, but we were hit by live ammunition. At that time, my sister, Aisha, was shot and wounded, so we fled to the sea in western Maghazi. And when the Maghazi refugee camp was established, we were able to return to Maghazi itself. The book includes maps and images of people and places of Batani al-Sharqi. The process of compiling the research was a labor of love for a village he has never been able to visit. According to Khalid Safi, professor of modern Arab history at Gaza's Al-Aqsa University, almost 100 books documenting the Nakba have come out over the decades, but they haven't been enough. We need a collective national effort that keeps record of the Nakba history and a time of constant attempts by Israel to obliterate the Palestinian identity and memory. And I believe that such a collective work is not less significant than any other forms of the Palestinian struggle, including armed and political ones. The Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics suggests that as of late 2014, the Palestinian refugee population stood at five and a half million. Many refugees from specific areas have tried to remain together. That is the case with those displaced from Batani al-Sharqi. Mesleh estimates the descendants Batani al-Sharqi number around 11,000 and that most live in the Magazi refugee camp in a neighborhood named after the village Rami Al-Mahari's report aired originally on Free Speech Radio News. To learn more about the Nakba, I visited Rabab Abdelhadi, professor of ethnic studies and the senior scholar of the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas Initiative at San Francisco State University. She grew up in Nablus, the second largest city in the West Bank. It's the place that many Palestinians fled to during the Nakba. Professor Abdelhadi began by explaining what happened in 1948. There are three refugee camps around Nablus, Balata, Asker, and Lain. First, before Israel, the Zionist militias, the Haganah, the Stern, the Lihi Gang, all of them, basically had a plan to push Palestinians. They call it the Dalit plan, that in the north of Palestine, the Zionist militias surrounded the west, the east, and the south. In the middle of Palestine, they surrounded the north, the west, and the south. And then the southern part of Palestine, they surrounded the west, the north, and the east. So Palestinians could only flee to areas where there is surrounding Arab countries. So this is what created the Gaza Strip, because that's the southern part of Palestine, Askalan, Lod, Eshdud. They all went to Gaza. The middle went to the West Bank, right, to Nablus, Ramallah, and so on. And the north went to Lebanon. They made it in such a way, they massacred people. Their Yassin massacre is well known, April 9th, 1948. Menachem Begin said without their Yassin, Israel might not have been founded because they massacred people. And then they paraded their bodies. And now the Israeli declassified their archives. The archives are coming out and saying Israeli military commanders themselves and the commanders of the Zionist militia before Israel was founded, before 1948, they all acknowledged that they actually drove Palestinians at gunpoint. So it was a mass expulsion of a whole population. 800,000 Palestinians were all expelled, became refugees overnight. How did you first learn about Nakba? Well, uh, it's another layer to the story. You know, I was born and raised in Nablus, and my dad was born in Jenin, my mother in Hanabta, in the West Bank. But my aunt 
ام خليل سميحه خليل اكشلي هر هازبندز فاميلي كمز فروم طيبه which is inside Israel and they became refugees overnight so they got into the boat with her children and they uh, went to on the boat to Lebanon and they became refugees because they were pushed out also we used to always hear that uncle Salame her husband was always going to see his family at Mendelbaum gate which is the gate separating East Jerusalem from West Jerusalem at the time to see the family that is Palestinian who stayed inside 100 to 150,000 now it's um, almost 1.5 million, almost to 20% of the Israeli population. So they would go meet at the gate, see each other for a couple of hours. Also, there is all the refugee camps. Kids were coming to school. It's a daily reality. It's kind of like the Palestinian diaspora, the expulsion after Nakba. It's a very defining moment. So it was always present. Do you remember being told stories specifically about what happened during Nakba? Yeah, I think my aunt actually like used to speak a lot and she used to like say, we, um, I still remember saying that, you know, the boat almost tipped over and they almost died. She's like always talking about that. Of course, when I grew older, I started hearing other stories. When I went and interviewed the children of the people who survived the 1982 Sabra and Shatila massacre in Beirut. And when I asked them, where are you from? Every single kid defined him or herself as coming from a village in what is now Israel that were destroyed. So you say, Rabi'a, where are you from? Safuriya. None of the villages exist because 531 villages were completely destroyed by Israel in 1948 and to erase any kind of Palestinian existence. Like some have cactus, some have older buildings. Some, they were kept intact and turned into artist colonies like Ein Hod. So everybody knows where they come from because every generation teaches the younger generation where they come from. It's part of who, knowing who you are. I want to play two clips at this point. This is from a website called Nakba Survivor, and this is young Palestinians talking about their family histories and their family's experiences of the Nakba. My father recounts exactly what happened on July 12, 1948, when my hometown of Ramle felt the Zionist forces and was declared a military zone by none other than Yitzhak Rabin. My family, along with most Arab residents, were forcibly evicted from their homes and their lands, placed on trucks and taken to the very edge of town to be expelled. The army fired rounds in the air to scare off the women and the children and the elderly, many of whom were fasting as it was the holy month of Ramadan. Almost a million Palestinians shared the same fate in 1948, the largest man-made refugee population at the time. My name is Mohanad al-Khairi, Dubai-based Palestinian blogger and activist, and I'm a second-generation Nakba survivor. I'm from the West Bank village of Ramun, Palestine. In the mid-1960s, my grandfather, Isa Atrash, was Muhtar of the village. During the 1967 war, my grandfather was accused of housing resistance fighters, providing them food and a place to stay. And because of that, uh, right after the war, my grandfather was arrested, publicly beaten, and sent to prison. And his home was demolished. Because my mom's home was demolished, her, her mother, and her six siblings were forced to live with extended family. Um, and her father stayed in jail for five years. When he was released, he left the country and came to the United States. And as a child, I remember my father on the phone with my uncles or on the phone with my grandfather, his father, 
um, always talking about the land, always trying to find a way to go back. Um, it always seemed like he was trying to save enough money in order to go back to reclaim his land, to take care of his home, uh, to reconcile with his brothers and sisters. But when I was 13, my father passed away. Dina Omar, second generation survivor of the Nakba, the ongoing occupation and the ongoing Israeli colonization of Palestine. So they remember the, the villages, the cities, the towns from where their grandparents actually came. I think it's also really important not only to remember the destruction, but also to remember that there was life, that people were growing the oranges and the olives and the almonds and the, tilling the, the fields of Palestine. And then there was this cultural life that Yaffa was one of the places where the first movie theater, my first film probably in the Arab world was made. And what's going on today was actually really, really exciting is the reclaiming of the Palestinian past and talking about the Palestinian narrative today. And it's not stagnant. It's not some kind of nostalgia only to the to great past and so on. But there was life. There was life with the contradictions, with the good and the bad and everything else. There was life. And we are going to both continue to resist the Nakba and also continue to live as a people. And we're going to make sure that the younger generation doesn't forget. And it's not forgetting. You're listening to Making Contact. We're speaking with Rabab Abdelhadi, professor of ethnic studies and senior scholar of the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas Initiative at San Francisco State University. We're talking about the Nakba, the catastrophe that drove over 700,000 Palestinians from their lands in 1948. After pushing Palestinians off their lands in the heart of Palestine, what remained was under the control of neighboring countries. The West Bank was formally annexed to Jordan and Gaza was controlled by Egypt. On June 6, 1967, the Israeli military invaded Jordan, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. This is referred to in most U.S. history books as the Six-Day War, but Palestinians call it the Naksa. It means the calamity or the setback, and it marks the starting point of the military occupation of Palestine that continues through today. Professor Abdelhadi was 10 when she saw the Israeli troops invade Nablus. Under Israeli occupation, so I witnessed the 1967 occupation. Actually, everybody in the building, we hid in our, my parents' dining room because it's supposed to be the best shelter. Uh, my dad was the head of civil defense of the neighborhood, right? And so we hid there, and we all thought that the military advancing from the east was Arabs coming to liberate us. And it was the Israelis, and they shot one of the neighbor's sons, who he went around to cheer, and they shot and killed him. Then it was complete curfew, like nobody, nobody could do anything, nobody could go anywhere. We missed, like, I think six months of school, because A, Israel had the curfew, and a lot of the teachers went on strike, refused to teach the Israeli curriculum. I also remember like walking into school at that time, because then now I, had, I was no longer in elementary school, I was in middle school, so we had to walk far away and you know when you're a little girl you're walking around and then the guys the Palestinian guys will stand and like make some comments sexual harassment and so on but when the, that would happen like I will tell my dad and my dad will walk me to school or drive me and give them a dirty look and they'll never do it again 
But the Israeli soldiers used to also be on patrol, and they would like say all sorts of nasty things. They were cuss. They would, you know, make sexual innuendos and so on. And I never told my dad. All of us, all the girls, nobody told our parents, as if we all made a pact that we're not going to say. And I thought about it later on. Why did I never told? I think it's because what would he do? He's going to feel helpless. He cannot do anything about it. Or he's going to go and get beaten up by the Israeli soldiers because they had the power. So there is this kind of like the, the totalizing effect of colonial power, you know, the colonial military power, and the anger you feel inside about, you know, that's not okay, that you want to do something about it. So whenever people were doing something about it, whether it was Palestinian resistance, whether it was the Israeli military government will call them to come and they refuse to go, Everything people did or signing petitions like I know my mother would always like people will come and chat at the door, women, and then they were like, what are they doing? They're signing petitions against or hunger strike. I went to my first hunger strike with my mother at, at the mosque, you know, right after when the occupation began. So all of this stuff was going on at the same time. So I don't remember any kind of any other childhood. I mean, I don't remember anything else except I remember after 67, there is no feast. There is no music. There is no dancing. There is no singing. Every time you wanted to laugh or something, my mother would say, what are you doing? You know how many martyrs are there? You know how many prisoners are there? So we grew up, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is everybody's experience, but like my parents were very anti-colonial uh, and the, fam- the whole family. So I do not know any other life. You know, a lot of people sort of understand Nakba and the continuing occupation as part of a settler colonialism. Yeah. Explain what that is. Well, settler colonialism is very different than, than classical colonialism in the sense that the European colonial projects, whether it is by England, France, Spain, um, Italy, they went to various places in Asia and Africa first, right? And they ripped off the resources, the raw material, the diamonds, the mines, the agriculture, the tea. That's why there is the East India Tea Company in India and so on. And they've done that, all right? Or the U.S. later projects of colonialism around 1898, the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico. That project involves going there, controlling. It's a total system also. It's military, it's social, it's political, it's economic. If you look at the Algerian experience, for instance, that's a colonial project. Settler colonialism is where members of those colonial nations go and actually settle and wipe away or try to wipe by the indigenous people. So we see this in the Americas, by the way, both North and South. We see that in New Zealand. We see that in Australia. We see that in South Africa. So this is projects where the complete replacement or making, in the words of Fanon, the people who are colonized subhuman, kind of like non-being. They don't exist. They don't, they're not there. They don't factor in the whole equation. Settler colonialism seeks to do that, and there are multiple variations of it. And it has to do with also what is the goals of each project. So in the Israeli Zionist settler colonial project, it's really erasing any traces of Palestine. And it is necessary for the Zionist uh, settler colonial project to erase, because if you don't erase as a Zionist project, you cannot make linkages to a history that has been actually exploited, the Jewish history. The Zionists who set up Israel actually were not religious, so it wasn't really because of a religious connection to Palestine. Actually, the Zionist movement was offered Uganda and Argentina. They were offered by the British colonialism, Uganda and Argentina, and they said, oh, we can't establish any links. Huh? Let's see if we can actually look at the Jewish religion 
and the religious establishment was not involved. They did, were not involved in the Zionist project. They took the Torah and they said, aha, we can actually establish a link to Palestine and so on. It's very interesting. So how come you didn't establish a link to Egypt where Moses was expelled? So this is what happens with the settlers. So it's very different than the colonial project. I think it's important to think about that because it is not a classical case of colonialism where you can just say you need to leave and just anti-colonial struggle. And, and so it, you need to think about different ways in which some of the people ended up there. And so and the Palestinian movement historically has said that, yes, this is all our land. This is the land legitimately ours. The people who are there, if they are willing to live with us in equality and in justice and in respect, they become citizens of Palestine. It's sort of like maybe one person, one vote, or maybe a different kind of variation of that recipe that the African National Congress came up with for South Africa. Mm. How would you characterize the Palestinian resistance to occupation today? What do you think makes it different from what we've seen in you know, maybe in the 90s or the 80s? I think, I think it's different and I think it's similar. I think it's similar in the sense of the spirit of resistance, is that there is rejection of the colonial project, there is rejection of the settler colonial project. There is actually, see, the Palestinian resistance movement went through ebbs and flows. So there was resistance. It grew in Palestinian refugee camps. Surprise, surprise, in Lebanon, in Jordan, elsewhere, in, in the West Bank. I mean, this is kind of like the stuff I remember, but probably that's where I got my consciousness. So the Palestinian armed resistance grew. At the same time that there were like the hijacking of planes and so on by Leila Khaled and other people, there was also resistance going on day in and day out. Inside, there were people who were protesting. There were people who were also doing militant action that many of them were arrested in 1968 and spent 17 years in prison. And then there is also the mass movement, building the mass movement, engaging in strikes. During the 1987 Intifada, there were the, the tax tracks that people of Beit Sahur refused to pay taxes. They said, we're not going to pay taxes to the Israeli occupation. We refuse. So there was always mixed ways of resistance, which is the way to do it. It's actually, if you want to, if you want to resist dominating powers, you don't use one kind, okay? And then at one point after the Oslo agreement between Israel and the, and the PLO, which many of us, I would say majority of Palestinians, think of it as a colonial agreement that legitimized the Israeli military occupation and colonial rule and so on, and basically gave it a Palestinian cover, whereby Israel can actually try to get away with it and say it's not our responsibility, it's the Palestinian responsibility. And many of us are actually now demanding the dismantling of Oslo and basically let the Palestinian Authority give the keys back to the Israel and say, you know, we don't want to lock the ghetto ourselves. You take the keys and you can lock the ghetto yourself, right? But so now, so there was the debate in the Palestinian movement over what sort of resistance, what does resistance mean? Does armed resistance make sense or it doesn't make sense? Today, because Oslo has failed, it has failed in the Aqsa Intifada of 2000 to 2004, 2005, there was also that there was very militant suicide bombing were taking place and so on. It was basically, it basically, the, the, the occupation is so oppressive that the only way young people felt that they can confront is to say to them, you know, if we don't have security, they don't have security. If we are unable to even sleep the night without getting grades, without our bodies being used as human shields, without our homes being destroyed, pregnant women giving birth and children and mothers dying at the checkpoint. If we don't, we can't even breathe, why should the colonizers be allowed to breathe? I mean, this was the logic. Today, there is the, the boycott movement, which is BDS, which is calling on the whole world to participate into 
But holding Israel accountable like any other country, holding Israel accountable and not allowing it to get away with murder, not even literally with murder, with murder. There is also all the Palestinians who are actually saying we're going to engage in all sorts of resistance in Jerusalem, in Hebron, and elsewhere. People who are refusing to let go of their homes, people who are building homes because, you know, Israel doesn't give permits. People, there are Palestinians inside Israel who refuse to serve in the Israeli military, and they have a big campaign that says, resist and your people will protect you. And the boycott, boycotting Israeli products, I'm trying to provide Palestinian uh, alternative, which is very difficult under totalizing colonialism. It is so difficult because Israel controls everything in the economy. I mean, everything. So to try to create like a little bit of thick yogurt from the milk, it's a very tall order, but people are doing it. The state of Israel's official account of the Nakba differs dramatically from what we just heard. For years, the different accounts lived alongside each other, until the 1980s, when Israel declassified a trove of military documents from that period. The declassified military documents and the first-hand accounts from the generals of Zionist militias confirm the facts that Professor Abdelhadi shared. Many of the Palestinians who lived through the Nakba have since passed away, but their descendants are giving their experiences new life. In New York, poet Remy Kanazi honors his grandmother through his poem, Nakba. She was scared. Seven months pregnant. Guns pointed at temples. Tears dropping, stomach cusp, back bent. Dirt pathways leading to dispossession. Rocking boats, waves crashing, people rushing, falling over each other, packing into small spaces. Like memories. Her home. Mandated, occupied, cleansed, conquered. Terrorizers sat on hills, sniping children. Neighbors fled on April 10th. Word game of massacre. They stayed. Didn't fight. Didn't flee. Shells and bombs bursting in air like anthems. Prayed for the dead with priests and imams, prayed for the living, looking over shoulders for the Ergon and Haganah. She's a warrior, raised life, planted trees, painted fruit, as if the road was her garden orphaned twice. Had birth from Palestine, whispered Yaffa till final breath, never knew essence until she found emptiness, 48 ways to flee, and she found Beirut. Bullet holes in buildings, reminder of home, but not home. Years later, daughter sat on hills in the south, dreaming of breaking water, never touched, thinks of their mother, that warrior, how battles still rage here and abroad, orchards flourished, propagandists called them barons, land expropriated for Europeans who called religion ethnicity, not native, not from here, plant flags, call it home, rename cities and villages, wiping, cleaning, cleansing memory that this is not theirs. Passed away August 22nd, 2009. Frail hands shook, lip trembled, didn't want to die, but suffered decades. She will speak Arabic, broken English, wounded words and murmurs her eyes close, but every so often they blink brilliance, 
memories that cannot be erased, uprooted, or stolen. She has not forgotten. We have not forgotten. We will not forget. Veins like roots of olive trees, we will return. That is not a threat, not a wish, a hope, or a dream, but a promise. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. The music you heard on today's show was from the Hope Spoken Broken Project, which relays real-life stories from the Jabalia refugee camp in Palestine through hip-hop. You can check them out on SoundCloud and YouTube by looking up Hope Spoken Broken. Thank you to the Institute for Middle East Understanding for sharing the Nakba testimony. You can hear more of them at nakbasurvivor.com. Rami Al-Mahari reported from Gaza. You can find more of his reporting at fsrn.org. Thanks also to poet Remy Kanazi. For more, visit his website, remykanazi.com. To download a copy of this program or to subscribe to our podcast, check us out at radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Our producers are Monica Lopez and Jasmine Lopez. Quan Booth is our digital content and community engagement manager. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.